Oh, and pray for my wife. Uh, she's she's under the weather. We're sharing bugs is what we're doing. All right, so we are in uh, Luke chapter 23, and we are just burning this up. And uh, we're talking about when Christ died on the cross. And uh, I stated earlier that we were looking at uh, the witnesses of the crucifixion. And I think last week what we looked at was um, the witness of the scriptures in regards to Christ. And and I keyed off his... Um, his last words, according to Luke, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And uh, so we kind of keyed off on what uh, the testimony of the scriptures was in regards to the crucifixion of, of Jesus. Now we're going to look at the second uh, witness to the crucifixion, uh, this centurion. Um, this centurion who was commanded by Pilate to oversee and carry out this unjust sentence in regards to Jesus Christ at least as far as the other two men that were crucified with Christ they indeed you know under the penalty of law they indeed deserved what they got as we saw the dying thief admit but as far as Christ was concerned it was an unjust charge and yet uh, this centurion was the man who was put in charge uh, to carry out this unjust sentence in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ so verse 47 is our verse he says here in Luke 23 46 and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice he said father into thy hands I commend my spirit and having said thus he gave up the ghost so he died all right so his body went limp on the cross now when the centurion saw what was done he glorified God saying certainly this was a righteous man all right so that's what the centurion said who was placed in charge of the execution of these three men specifically of course the Lord Jesus Christ and of course the gospel writers they don't give us his name he's an unnamed uh, Roman centurion now what in the world is a centurion some of you folks may know and some of you folks may not know but a centurion was pretty much the backbone of the Roman army uh, they were referred to often as legionnaires, which I think is very similar to what we would call those who have gone through combat. We call them veterans, don't we? We call them veterans. So a, a centurion would be a, a military career man who had been tested in battle. Uh, he'd been, he'd, he would be one who had shown himself courageous in the face of danger, resourceful, uh, dedicated uh, to, the, to the military, dedicated to his commanders. Uh, these uh, centurions would be uh, uh, soldiers who had uh, worked their way up through the ranks, rank and file of the infantry. They would have earned their promotions uh, due to their skill, uh, due to their um, being able to lead men under stressful situations. They were recognized for this. And the reason why they were for, referred to as centurions is because they would be placed in command over a squad of 100 men. So that's why they were called a centurion. So if a legion, I think, was made up of about 6,000 men, and there would be 60 centuries within these, this, this, this legion, and each of these centuries would be 
commanded by a centurion. That's why they call him a, a centurion. Now, in a modern army, like let's say in the United States Army, uh, an equivalent to a centurion would be a captain. Would be a captain. Right, so he would he would be a captain in the in the modern army. So both Matthew and Mark's gospels uh, record for us, like Luke does here, what this man said when Jesus uh, gave up the ghost. Okay, when Jesus gave up the ghost in Matthew twenty seven fifty four. It says, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. Mark 15.39, and when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So both Matthew and Mark uh, record that this centurion uh, testified or confessed that surely, truly, truly this was the Son of God. Of course, the word truly means of a truth, right? Of a truth. Now we see here in Matthew's gospel, he says, certainly this was a righteous man. Certainly this was a righteous man. So apparently this centurion saw something in Jesus that impressed him, right? I would, wouldn't that be safe to say? That this centurion saw something in Jesus that that impressed him. And, in, and certainly it wouldn't be beyond the scriptures to say that the full quote of this centurion would have been, certainly this was a righteous man, truly this man was the son of God. I don't think that would be a stretch to say that. I don't think that would be a stretch to say that. Now stop and think about this, you know. This is a this is a hardened, battle-seasoned man who has seen much violence in his life, possibly. Possibly this man was a pagan because most of them were back then. You know, he worshiped the gods of Rome or maybe he worshiped Caesar. I don't know, but you know, definitely he didn't believe in the god of the of the Jews, but yet he says Truly, this is the Son of God. That's a remarkable statement for someone of his stature, of his upbringing to stay. So, as I looked at this, I'm thinking to myself, what in the world may have prompted this this centurion to say such a thing? What, What was it that he saw, that he observed, that would bring him to make such an incredible statement? after watching this man on the cross give up the ghost. Now, I believe it's very, very likely that this man heard the accusations that his enemies, Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees and the elders, uh, when they presented him before Pilate, I believe this man heard uh, the accusation. In John 19, 7, it says... When they were answering Pilate, he says, you know, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. They said, uh, we have a law, and by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. It's very possible that that centurion heard that. Very possible. It was also very possible that this centurion would have been standing pretty close to Pilate when the messenger sent from Pilate's wife to warn her husband about this man called Jesus. Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, 
When he, Pilate, was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. It's very, very possible that this centurion heard the messenger sent from Pilate's wife. Yes? Uh, Matthew twenty-seven nineteen. Now, both Matthew and Luke, uh, they write down uh, that the centurion was observing all of this. Okay? Uh, Matthew states that they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done. Luke says, now when the centurion saw what was done. All right, so... Luke tells us he saw what was done versus what were done. I don't know, maybe I'm stretching this, but what was done was a, is a fairly broad statement. To me, I think this would imply that uh, he not only observed what took place here at the execution site, but it's very possible that he saw the whole thing from beginning to end. You see, he may have been uh, the OD on that day. You know what an OD is? (laughs) Officer of the day. They did that. You see, a lot of our things that we do in the military today, we've adopted from the Roman military. So it's very, very possible that this centurion was the officer of the day who would be on, on duty and he would, uh, he would be the one that the commanding officer would put in charge to make sure every, all the pieces is kept, right? And who, who was the commanding officer? Pontius Pilate. And so this officer of the day, he would be responsible to oversee the guard, preserving order, protecting property, um, enforcing inspection of regulations, and taking care of any prisoners. Taking care of any prisoners, of which Jesus was that day, wasn't he? And it's very, very possible that this centurion would have observed the trial from the very beginning when the Jews first brought Jesus to Pilate. The centurion would have been right there being the officer of the day. He would have been the one in charge of taking Jesus to Herod's palace and then bringing him back again. This same man would also would have overseen the scourging of Jesus. Right? Right? In the plating of the crown of thorns, he observed all of this. He observed all of this. How many executions has this man been in charge of? (laughs) Yeah. Who knows? Multiple executions, quite possibly. Multiple executions. That was his job. That was his job. He was a man of man of this kind of thing. He would have taken care of insurrectionists. He would have taken care of murderers. He would have taken care of those who were found guilty under penalty of law. At times, he would have been the one in charge of taking these folks to their deaths. 
Now, think a minute, you know, about the folks being taken away to be crucified or however they're going to be, you know, executed. Uh, Some of them probably defiant up to the end, right? (laughs) There's that kind, defiant, cursing their executioners, cursing, you know, anybody they can think of. Others, uh, the insurrectionists, maybe the zealots, they may have been shouting patriotic slogans. What is it that Patrick Henry said? I regret that I have one life to live for my country. You know, they could have been shouting out patriotic slogans trying to incite the people into rebellion. Others may have begged for mercy. Others may have stoically in silence met their fate. I don't know. I've never been part of of a Green Mile squad. I don't know. I think the centurion probably could say, uh, based upon his experience, he's probably seen, probably seen about it all, right? Probably nothing would surprise this man, being a centurion, being a man who's in the business of violence. And there may have even been a jaded professionalism set in about the business, Sometimes we see that in our military men, and sometimes we see that in our um, police officers. There's kind of a jaded professionalism. I've seen it before type of thing. You know, I've heard that story before. I can't help but think that of all the executions that this centurion has been in charge of, he's never seen anyone like Jesus. He's never seen anyone quite like Jesus. Jesus is unique in history. Do you believe that? There was never anyone like him before, and there will never be another one like him. He's broke the mold. So when this centurion was watching Jesus and observing all of these things, he was seeing somebody he has never seen before. An eyewitness stated it this way. In First Peter chapter two twenty one through twenty three, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know, this centurion quite possibly witnessed uh, Jesus' demeanor before Pilate and his accusers. When Jesus stood before Herod while they mocked him. Powerful men. Influential men. Men who had the power of life and death. Who could have released Jesus or condemned Jesus. You know what, you know what uh, this centurion did not see? He did not see a frightened man. He did not see a craving coward begging for mercy. Nor did he see a defiant man, a rebellious man. A man hurling out blasphemies and empty threats. He didn't see that either. Neither uh, did he see a man uh, who was a raging fanatic. 
or a crafty conniver, a con man. He didn't see any of that. He didn't see someone who was groveling or someone who just simply surrendered to his fate, feeling sorry for himself. He didn't see anything like that in Jesus. I dare say what he possibly saw was a man who was sacrificing himself for a greater cause. And I'm talking from the centurion's perspective. That would have impressed him. Because that's what he was. A man who sacrificed himself time and time again on the battle line. He witnessed a man poised and dignified. A man who held his own in the face of his persecutors. A man who held the line. A man who answered his prosecutor, a pilot, with words of sanity and truth. Again, not the words of a, of a schemer, but an honest man. A man without guile who, in this centurion, centurion's eyes, lived according to a principle that he had never encountered before. This man, Jesus, was no ordinary man. And he saw that. When he stood nearby, overseeing his men, spiking the criminals to the cross, quite possibly the other two were probably what? Hurling out threats and blasphemies and cursings. What did he hear Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who does that? Who does that? Only a loving, righteous man would do such a thing. Romans 5, 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. But God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that was the higher principle that he was seeing from Jesus. Principle of love. Now think a minute about this centurion. A man in his position. I'm thinking that this man is primarily exposed to the dark side of humanity, don't you think? Like many of our police officers. That's pretty much all they see is the dark side of humanity. The broken homes. The violence. The criminals. The abusers. Those who are malicious and intend to do harm to others. So he may have been a man who was jaded toward his fellow man. It happens. It happens. He may have even harbored a level of contempt for his fellow human beings. It's possible. Yet here before him was a man who prayed for the forgiveness of those who were nailing him to the cross. Who is this guy? 
who is this person that that I'm taking taking to his death think again also about the scenario on the cross he heard the interchange between Jesus and the repentant thief he heard that discussion going on he heard how Jesus had given this man the promise of paradise and think about this Remember when we studied that? That thief at one time was casting curses and blasphemies in the face of Jesus. Now, this very same man had a peace that passes all understanding while he was on that cross. He was no longer casting out threats and curses, but there was a peace. Even while he was on the cross, this is a changed man. He saw that. He saw that. At one time, this man was irreverent, and now he is showing reverence. At one time, he was up there cursing and and carrying on, and now he was calm and at peace. That would have been remarkable. What would have been even more remarkable is to hear Jesus give this promise of paradise to this man as though he had the authority to do so. Think about that. Here he was hanging on the cross and yet he speaks still with this royal authority of a king in this promise of paradise. Who does this? A maniac, a lunatic doesn't do this. What about when Jesus spoke to his mother and one of his disciples, John, and he put into the care of John his mother? Right? While he was up there in agony on the cross, he thought of his mother, took care of his mother. In the eyes of this centurion, what do you think that would have looked like? That would have been a very noble and loving moment. Right? That I think even this battle-hardened centurion would appreciate Unlike the man recently tried and found guilty of murder in our own county who blamed his mother for the way he was and that's why he murdered those two girls. Centurion didn't see that in Jesus. Even in agony he saw this man loving his mother seeing to her care. That's remarkable. No thought of self. The centurion also witnessed the darkness that fell upon that scene, and he heard the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I don't know about you guys. There's no way I can imitate that cry. But think about it. That had to be a very powerful cry 
There has never been a separation between the Son and the Father until that moment. That had to have been a very powerful cry. And then on top of that, yeah, he may have been ignorant of the veil in the temple, but he felt the earthquake. (laughs) He heard the rock split. That's pretty impressive. Right? When he died, all of a sudden the whole ground started shaking. Who is this guy? (laughs) You know, who is this guy? Um, Have you guys ever wondered what happened to this centurion? Whatever happened to this guy? He makes this statement, and that's the last we hear about him in the Bible. And sometimes the Bible doesn't give us those details that we we would like to know. Whatever happened to this centurion? It doesn't tell us. So we're kind of left to wonder about this man. It's kind of a, what do they call that? Is that called an open statement? I don't know. Just kind of left open. Did he come to a saving faith in Christ or, or not? Well, <laughs> Eastern Orthodox Church tradition says that this man's name was Longinus. Now, got to be careful with church tradition. All right? Got to be careful with it. It's sometimes difficult to separate the fact from the lore and the fable, especially when you're going way, way back in the early period, back in the 3rd century, 4th century type of stuff. But anyway, this church tradition teaches... Uh, that this Longinus was also the soldier who pierced Jesus' side with the spear. And apparently he had some sort of eye affliction and the blood and water splashed on his face and, and healed him of this. Now you see, now there, there is where you got to take stuff with a grain of salt. I, you know, that's the way the early church was. They liked to embellish some things. So you've got to be careful about the extra-biblical stories. It's also believed that this same Longinus and his men, you know, to carry on with the duty, was also in charge of guarding the tomb. So it was a very long day for this centurion and his troops. Because you remember the Jews were concerned that Jesus' disciples would steal his body and carry him away and cause all sorts of trouble. It's also told in church tradition that when the Jews came to bribe the soldiers to keep their mouths shut about what they witnessed as far as the angel coming and the resurrection, that Longinus and a couple of his soldiers refused to do so. You know, they didn't take the bribe. The Bible didn't say that, but that's what the, this tradition says. Tradition also goes on to say that um, Longinus and his two other soldiers who refused the money, uh, they left the service of Rome and they moved to a place in Cappadocia, uh, called Cappadocia, which uh, they believe is where Longinus originated from. 
And when he went to Cappadocia, he preached the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus and won a lot of converts. And so the Jews got upset with Longinus going and preaching about the resurrection. And we know from the Bible that they did get upset about that because that's what Peter and John got in trouble for. And so the Jews went to Pontius Pilate and said, you've got to do something about Longinus. He's causing us some problems. We don't like it. So apparently, according to church tradition, Pilate sent some Roman soldiers, went to Cappadocia and beheaded Longinus. So he, he was a martyr. He was a martyr. Eastern Orthodox Church holds to it. The Roman Catholic Church holds to this. And again, we've got to be careful. Right? we just got to be careful. Uh, certain denominations, they'll take these stories and they'll hold them equal to the Word of God. So you've got to be careful. I mean, Jesus ran into that with his own... Jewish brethren, he accused them, you, you teach the traditions of men over the commandments of God. So you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Paul also warned about, you know, these things, about the fables and stuff. So you just got to be careful. But there are some church traditions that there is a little grain of truth in them. And sometimes you can back that up with other historical accounts. So I'm not discounting all of it. Just be careful. Just be careful. One thing is for sure, Second Peter 1.15 says, Moreover, I endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunning devised fables when we made not unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for eyewitnesses of his majesty. So long story short, <laughs> this is what we trust in. Right? For faith and life. It's best that you stick with God's word. Now, it would be wonderful that when we get up into glory, we get to meet this centurion. And he can tell us his story. That would be a pretty cool story. That would be a pretty cool story. One thing we do know about this man, he saw something that the Jews refused to see, didn't he? The Jews said that Jesus was not a righteous man. The Jews rejected him as being the Son of God, but yet this man saw what these men did not want to see, chose not to see. So, it could be. We'll see the centurion. I don't know. It could be. And it could be that this centurion is one of those pictures in the Bible of all the Gentiles who, like him, would say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. And his righteousness has been imputed to me. So he could be a picture of of all the Gentiles that would come to faith in Christ Jesus that makes up the majority of the Christian church. Could be. It could be. So we might see him, but... 
What's our practical application for this? If, if, if church tradition is true, if church tradition is true, what this man saw, what he confessed, changed him forever. Right? In short, if church tradition is true, you know what this man did? He was no longer a soldier of Rome. He became a soldier of the cross. A soldier for Christ, didn't he? Second Timothy 2.1 Now therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So if we can trust in church tradition, if we can say it's a reliable account, then this man became a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He saw the glory of the Lord. He saw everything that took place. And so he confessed, certainly this was a righteous man. Truly this was the Son of God. Life-changing experience. Should be true for every one of us. It should be a life-changing experience. That's what Lee Carter was talking about, right? The impact of Jesus on a life, that's a miracle. That's what he defined as a miracle. Change of life. Change of life. Now... I got up here, (laughs) soldier or castaway. And this is where I'm going to start getting nasty. I apologize ahead of time. Let's say, for application's sake, let's say the church tradition is wrong. Let's say that this man made this confession... of Jesus being the Son of God, but that's as far as it went. Let's say he received the bribe from the Jews to keep his mouth shut, and he did. In spite of everything that he saw, in spite of everything that he heard, in spite of what he said, that's as far as it went. Just for argument's sake, let's say that, that that's what happened. Because we don't know. The Bible, is just, it just stops right there, doesn't it? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be, here's a nasty word, reprobates. I used to call my kids reprobates. (laughs) Reprobates. You know, there's a lot of folks who confess and profess that Jesus is Lord. That he is the Son of God. That he is a righteous man. They come to church. They're pretty decent folks. Like this centurion, they've seen much and heard much. But there's still something... A disconnect. A disconnect. 
they um, oh, I don't want to sound judgmental I'm not up here a judge of any man's heart I don't know a man's heart but there are some folks that have more of an adopted faith than a personal faith they adopt it from mom and dad or they adopt it from a creed or they adopt it from their denomination but there's no personal faith Uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 30 this is the first place you find the word reprobate I want to talk about a reprobate in Jeremiah 6.30 this is Jeremiah speaking against the children uh, against the, the Jerusalem the the leadership in Jerusalem this is prior to Babylon coming and taking the people away they're under judgment from God Jeremiah is trying to call them to repentance but they reach a point they reach a point where Jeremiah through the inspiration of God has to proclaim reprobate silver shall men call them because the Lord hath rejected them that's the first time you're going to find the word reprobate in the Bible and a reprobate is someone or something that has been measured by or tested and has found to be unapproved and therefore rejected remember what uh, Timothy uh, Paul wrote to Timothy study to show thyself approved yeah so a reprobate is someone who's proven themselves unproved or they fall short they fall short now, to probate something is to prove it Right, a person is put on probation they have to prove by good behavior uh, you get a job and for the first 30 days you're under probation to prove that you know you're going to fit within the company that type of thing so to, to, uh, to probate something is to prove it so it's a proving period um, a probe <laughs> a probe is used for examination right unpleasant but that's, that's what it is it's used for examination uh, so the prefix re like in reprobate the prefix means uh, either to do something again such as retype or repossess uh, to go back like recede or return or to intensify such as research or regard so to reprobate something is to prove it again so a reprobate is someone or something but someone who has been tested has been examined has been measured against a particular standard and found lacking found lacking they don't measure up they don't measure up and since they fail this they are rejected they're not approved now in Jeremiah 6.30 um, the reason why these folks were reprobates and because they were rejected you see the reason up here in verses 16 through 17 Jeremiah 6 16 and 17 
He says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein. And ye shall find rest for your souls. So he's calling them back to the word of God. He's calling them back to fellowship with God. He's saying, Guys, come on. Repent of your sins and return to me. But look what it says. But they said, we will not walk therein. No, we don't want to go the old paths. We don't want to go the old religion. We don't want anything to do with that. Verse 17. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken. The the watchman is like Jeremiah. These are prophets saying, guys, repent, repent, or judgment's going to fall. What does it say they said? We're not going to pay attention to these watchmen, these messengers, these prophets. So what happened to these guys? They became reprobates. And so they were rejected. They said, no, we want nothing with God's word. We want nothing to do with God's messengers. So they were reprobate because they rejected God's word. And that's the context that Paul's talking about in connection with the Corinthians. He says, hey guys, prove yourselves whether you be in the faith or not. That's your your measurement. That's your standard. Prove whether or not you're in the faith, that you're in the truth. That's what he's calling these folks to do. The word reprobate occurs four times. Jeremiah 6.30, Romans 1.28, 2 Timothy 3.8, and Titus 1.16. And then three times here in 2 Corinthians 13. And in each of these usages of this word, the reason is clear why these particular individuals were either reprobate or in danger of being reprobates. It was because they were rejecting God's revelation, God's truth. And because they reject that standard by which all of us are measured against, then they become reprobate and therefore rejected. So being a reprobate is not some sort of sovereign decree by God on a select group of people. It's a choice that you and I make. Okay? Now, why why do I even bring this other side up? Because it's a reality. It's a reality. What if the centurion made this confession, but then that's as far as it went? That's a reality. That's a reality. You know, we live in the last days, I believe, of the church of the church age. And one of the one of the things about the end of the church age, according to Second Thessalonians two three, is that what? There's going to be a great falling away. That's one of the things that 
I know it's a sober thing, but that's one of the things that's there. Also, Second Peter, or First Peter, four seventeen says uh, that there's going to come judgment upon the church in that last period of the church age. And the reason why is because of this failure to hold to the standard, to the word of God. We want to be possessors of Christ, not just professors. Does that make sense? We want to be possessors of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27, and not just professors of Christ, which some professing have erred concerning the faith, 1 Timothy 6.21. So we want to be a possessor of Christ. And there's four areas that uh, folks uh, are at risk in becoming a reprobate or unapproved. One is being in the faith or not. Uh, This refers to one's conduct or conversation or character. Are you living what you say you believe? Is your faith seen by others in how you live? Titus 2.7 says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, uh, sincerity, sound speech cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So that's Titus 2.7-10. through 10. Now, I'm going to give some examples, and I'm not giving these examples to be a meanie, all right? And I'm not vilifying anybody. These, this, this is not Christian gossip. This is out there for anybody to see. It's sad. It's very, very sad. I don't know if anybody knows who Joshua Harris, Harris is. Joshua Harris was the founder of the evangelical purity culture. He was the one who uh, got folks to pledge chastity before marriage among the Christian youth. Um, I think there used to be a little ring involved. So he was, he, was, he was the one who got that going. Well, this is what he says. He says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am no longer a Christian. What happened? This man divorced his wife of 21 years. He was at one time a leading advocate of sexual purity among the young people and the uh, the unmarrieds in the Christian uh, community. What, What happened? Well, he has come out and acknowledged the LGBTQ community. He supports same sex marriage and he's participated in gay pride marches. What happened? Another way a person becomes reprobate concerning the faith is that, yeah, they become reprobate as far as the biblical teachings of one's belief and doctrine 
concerning the Christian faith. 2 Timothy 3.8 says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood, withstood Moses, so did these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobates concerning the truth. Uh, Paul Maxwell. Anybody hear the book of the book Desiring God? It was a big bestseller a few years back. Paul Maxwell, he's a Ph.D. student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Philosophy Professor at Moody Bible Institute, which is a very respected Bible college. The author of the popular book Desiring God, well, he's come out and openly renounced his his faith and said this, what I really miss is connection with people. What I've discovered is that I'm ready to connect again and I'm kind of ready not to get angry anymore. I love you guys and I love all the friendships and support I've built there and I think it's important to say that I'm not, I'm just not a Christian anymore and it feels good and I'm really happy about this. What happened? What happened? Well, a clue to this may be seen in his latest book that he wrote. The Trauma of Doctrine. New Calvinism. Religious Abuse and the Experience of God. This delves into the effects of abuse trauma that a Christian can experience when faced with Calvinistic beliefs. What happened? Yeah, he, he bought into a different gospel, didn't he? Concerning one's works, Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Okay, right here in our own neighborhood, a fellow by the name of Dave Gass he was a local, a local pastor right next door here in Pleasant Hill. Very influential, very influential pastor. In his own words, this is what he says. He says, I am walking away from the faith. This is a pastor of a fairly um, influential, prominent church. He comments, he says, I was fully devoted to studying the scriptures. I think I missed maybe 12 Sundays in 40 years. He says, I completely memorized 18 books of the Bible and was reading through the Bible for the 24th time when I walked away. He continues by saying, this massive cognitive dissonance, my beliefs not matching with reality, created a separation between my head and my heart. I was gaslighting myself to stay in the faith. Eventually, I could not maintain the facade anymore. I started to have mental and emotional breaks. My internal stress started to show in physical symptoms. Being a pastor, a professional Christian, was killing me. What happened? What happened? What happened to this man that claimed to be so devoted to faith and family? Well, what happened is this. One of the deacons caught him and confronted him because he was involved in a year-long affair with one of the ladies in the church. And instead of repenting, he went on the attack against the church 
blaming the faith and the church and everybody except for who was really responsible. And then concerning one's perseverance in the faith, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, this is Paul writing, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? He says, So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an uncorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so I so fight I, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring into and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So concerning perseverance in the faith, that word castaway is the very same word translated as reprobate. Okay, same word means to be disqualified. Paul doesn't want to be disqualified in his race. Another example. Anybody familiar with Hillsong? If you listen to Christian music, I think about 80% of it is Hillsong. Hillsong songwriter Marta Sampson wrote, Time for some real talk. He says, I'm genuinely losing my faith Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. My faith is on incredibly shaky ground. What happened? Well, this man was reading the wrong stuff. He was reading works by atheists. He was also reading, and I'm going to say it, he wasn't reading the standard. He was reading everything else, but he wasn't reading the truth. That's what happened. Now I bring this to your attention. Again, I'm not vilifying these guys. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not picking on these guys. I'm just telling you, it, it, it happens. These are men that other folks would have looked at and said, surely this is a centurion. These are men at one time who professed, but now in their own words, their own words, they've fallen away. They've fallen away. Again, being a reprobate doesn't necessarily mean you've lost your salvation. You know, all of these guys and you know they've got their own issues. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go to hell. But what it does mean is you'll lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll lose reputation. You'll lose the blessing of ministering. You'll lose fellowship. You'll lose a lot. So the practicable application of the centurion, this unnamed centurion that we really don't know, (laughs) the story, the history afterwards... Stand fast. Stand fast. 
see in the spirit of this age in the churches of our country we're seeing a lot of professing centurions but how many are possessors of Jesus Christ You know, what I pray for us is a real faith and not a soft faith. I pray for us that this story is like the church tradition, <laughs> a changed life that goes on and serves, for, serves as a soldier of Christ. And not the other one. Not the other one. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote, From strength to strength go on, wrestle and fight and pray, tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Still let the Spirit cry and all his soldiers come till Christ the Lord who reigns on high shall take the conquerors home. Stand fast. Stand fast, beloved. Will you become a soldier? (laughs) Or will you become a castaway? Anybody catch the SS Minnow? Yeah, we don't want to be stuck on an island somewhere, do we? Become a soldier of the cross or a silent reprobate? Really, the choice is ours. Stand fast. Stand fast. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this Uh, word it's sobering and it's a shame 